If you've ever struggled with an addiction or been a part of a recovery group, then you'll know that the first step in recovery groups like Alcoholic Anonymous is to admit that you have a problem. Step one. Admit that you have a problem. Otherwise, you're not going to get any help. In a very similar fashion, I want to begin right like that. Imagine we're in a recovery group. We are all needing help this morning. And if you want any help from the message you're about to receive, I want you to start to consider that the first step you need to do is admit you have a problem. More specifically, your problem is idolatry. You have an idolatry problem. We, by nature as humans, are idolaters to the very core of who we are. The Bible teaches that we were made as human beings to worship God, distinct from all the rest of creation. We are given the ability to worship. But all of us have a deep problem in our soul that we have exchanged the glory of God for idols. And so in this morning's message, I would like to consider three things. First, I want to cover the problem of idolatry. I want to cover the problem of idolatry and help answer the question, what's, what's the big deal with idolatry? Why is that a problem? So what if I'm an idolater? Secondly, I'd like us to consider that all of us, apart from Jesus, have a problem with idolatry. I'd like us to meditate on that more, think about it, and hopefully convince all of us that the Bible teaches us that we have idol factories in our heart. As one theologian said several hundred years ago, we churn out idols day after day, week after week. That apart from God's intervention, this is who we are. And like those AA meetings, we need to come and sit down and say, hi, my name's Phil, and I have an idol problem. Thirdly, lastly, I want us to look at idolatry from the perspective of God. I want to Think about why does he care about this so much and what he does about it. So in three quick succession, here's the outline and flow. The problem of idolatry, what's wrong with it? Our problem with idolatry, what's wrong with us? And finally, God's problem with idolatry. Some of you might even be thinking, what's, what's wrong with him? What's his problem? Let's turn to Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our study through the Ten Commandments. We consider commandment number two. I'm going to read all ten commandments for the sake of repetition every single week through this study and hope that you all will be able at the end of it to recite by memory all ten commandments if you haven't already learned them. So Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 17. This can be found on page 61 in the Black Bibles in front of you. I encourage you to open and follow along. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Number one, the problem with idolatry. What is so bad and wrong with idolatry? I'm going to give you the answer right away. You shall not make an image of God because God already made an image of himself. If we think about the whole teaching of Scripture, the reason this text is saying what it's saying in Exodus chapter 20 is because God has already made an image of himself, so you shall not make an image because he already did. Look closely back at the language of this verse in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And then he says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. When you look at verse 4 in particular, do you see any words that are familiar to you? Let me highlight a few of them and see if Scripture starts coming to mind. Image. Likeness, heaven above, earth beneath, water under the earth. Do any of those words, when you think about them, sound familiar to another place in Scripture? The answer is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the beginning of creation. Listen to these words. God said as he's creating the world in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Do you see what Exodus 20 is saying? You shall not make an image in the likeness of God, because God made an image in the likeness of God to have rule and dominion over everything on the earth and in the heaven above and the sea below. So you don't need to make one. God did. God made us in Genesis 1 to be like mirrors 
reflected, inverted mirrors that when you see us, it points so you see who God is and what he's like. It's what we were made for in Genesis 1, to be like God, to have rule and dominion over the earth and reflect his rule and his love and care for creation. The sad and devastating reality of the Bible is that God's image was immediately distorted in Genesis chapter 3, and the mirror was fractured. Any of you ever dropped your iPhone and it just shattered all over? I just recently had our daughters carrying our iPad and dropped it on the ground and it shattered all over. It still works. You can still touch things, but you might get glass splinters in your finger. I don't recommend it. Like it needs to be replaced. It needs restored and renewed. You can still see the image. It's not completely shattered where it doesn't function and work anymore. And so it is with you and me. You and I are shattered iPhone screens and iPads. We still function. But man, the image is distorted. It's not right. Adam and Eve were not content with their likeness of God. They wanted to have more. They wanted to be God. Not just be like him. They wanted to be him and determine what was good and what was evil. And so in God's mercy and grace, the story of the Bible continues. And eventually you find a man named Jesus who comes into the world to repair this broken, mirror, fractured image. Like the new iPad screen, Jesus is the fresh, new image of God. He is not cracked or smeared or distorted in any way. And so Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. You're supposed to read that in Colossians chapter 1 and say, Image, oh yeah, Genesis 1. Exodus 20, these words are being used again. Jesus is the image of God, and he is the perfect image of God. The word image in the Greek is the word icon. Many people bow down to icons. There's no need to bow down to other icons. There is one icon to bow down to. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the icon and the image of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says it this way. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then catch this. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Do not make an image or icon of God because he already made an image, us. We messed it up. And so therefore Jesus came and he made a new image of God. So no matter where you're reading in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, God gave us an image for us to bow down to. So do not make an image. Idolatry is such a big deal because it is a reduction of and a rejection of God. Reduction and rejection of God. When you make an idol for yourself, you're rejecting the idol that he gave for you. The image that he gave for you. The icon that he gave Jesus. Well, I don't want Jesus. I want my own God. Furthermore, every time you make an idol, it can never match up to the true God of the Bible, so it reduces him to something that he is not. J.I. Packer, in his awesome book, Knowing God, which should be on all of your libraries and on the top of your to-do list for reading. J.I. Packer, Knowing God. Excellent book just on God. Who is God? One of his chapters is all about idolatry. I'll just give you one little quote. I felt like reading the whole chapter to you. It's excellent. It's not as good as the Bible, 
but it's good. He says, to make an image of God is to take one's thoughts of him from a human source. To make an image of God is to take one's thoughts of him from a human source rather than from God himself. And that is precisely wrong. what is wrong with image making. You're reducing God because your creation is only as good as what you can make. And that falls so short of the majesty, holy, glory, and grandeur of the God who is. So do not make an idol or an icon because you will mess it up. You can't make it good enough. You will get it wrong. Don't make an idol because it will become a false god. And that should be clear in the first commandment that you have no other gods. But don't make an idol even to help you worship the one true God. That's, that's also what this text is saying. Not don't make an idol and bow down to Baal or Aphrodite or some other false god like Dagon who there's a statue of and he's a, a different god than the god Yahweh, the god of Jesus. Don't even make an idol of Jesus. Don't make an idol of Yahweh and bow down to that and say, well, this is helping me worship Yahweh. You're not supposed to do that because that will then, again, reduce God from who he really is. One way to helpfully think about the Ten Commandments is that the first commandment is about who you are to worship. The second commandment is about how you are to worship. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment two, you shall not make a carved image or anything in the likeness of the heaven above or earth beneath. You shall not bow down to anything that's created. You see, Roman Catholics and Lutherans and many others have combined commandments number one and two, and then they've split apart commandment ten, coveting, into its two parts, because it says you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and then you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So they make that nine and ten. We're following the Protestant Christian understanding of the Ten Commandments, because I believe it's important for you to see commandment number one is who you worship, God alone. Commandment two is how you worship, not by idolatry. Do not make an image. Many Christians today do not think that the Bible gives us instructions about how you are to worship. But we should see right here in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Like, is that any more central to what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian follower of Jesus? We talked in our introduction that this is central to the moral ethics of the Bible. The Ten Commandments are. And right in the second commandment is how you are to worship. Yes, the Bible teaches us how to worship. So no, you should not be thinking, we can just do whatever we want. There's spirit. Wherever the spirit is, there's freedom. If somebody wants to get up right now and introduce, in, interrupt the sermon and start speaking in a foreign language with no interpreter, that is in, unbiblical. Don't do that. Not just because the sermon's so great, because that would be disorderly and unbiblical. And read 1 Corinthians 14, you can read all about how the Bible says, do not do that in a worship service. If some of you think we should start doing incense and start smelling or bowing down to images or icons of Jesus, that that would be useful or helpful for our worship, or that we have an artist that while I'm preaching, they start painting and then we then bow down or pray to it or anything like that. Do you see what I'm saying? Christians do these sort of practices. And they think, oh, the Bible, we can do whatever we want. Let the second commandment ring in your ears clearly and loudly. 
God regulates how we are to worship. And this is why every week in your bulletin, if you even want to look at it right now, it says we read the word, we pray the word, we sing the word, we preach the word, we do the offering and trust in the word that we can give our money and our lives away and that we'll trust God. We see the word in the Lord's Supper and see the gospel lived out. That's not just sounds cool. It's trying to teach you that all of our worship is regulated by God's word. And here at Embassy, we would like to make that a staple for how we worship when we gather together. We don't do anything as far as I'm concerned in terms of its elements, the order in your service, that is outside of Scripture. Now, whether or not it's wrong to do skits and dramas in the worship service, we can debate on that. But it's not in Scripture, and so you don't see skits or dramas on the stage. You ever notice that? Etc. We could keep going here, and people have been super creative in the way that they individually worship. You can do that on your own, but when we gather together, God has commanded us how we are to gather. So we need to realize that God has instructed us. We are rejecting Him when we reject those instructions, and we are worshiping ourselves ultimately. Do you remember when Israel got the Ten Commandments from Moses? Before he even gave them to them on the stone tablets, the Israelites had already broken this second commandment and made a golden calf. You all remember that story? If you didn't, write down Exodus 32 and read it later today. Exodus 32 says that Aaron received gold from the hands of the rings and the jewelry of the people. He then used that gold and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, he said to them, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. The reason I want to share that with you is so that way you see that the Exodus, 10 commandments and the story that follows is to teach you, you are not to make any image or icon or idol or whatever else to represent God. They weren't bowing down to Baal. They were saying the Lord's personal covenant name. Let's go have a feast for Yahweh, the Lord. But that was inappropriate. That was not what they were to do. That was a direct disobedience of the second commandment. And this is crucial for us to get. You need to understand that no matter how much you think paintings, candles, pictures of Jesus, Jesus hanging on a crucifixion in your house, those things in and of themselves may not be bad. I'm not asking you to burn them and throw them out. But the moment you take those things as sacred and holy, the moment you set them apart, you reduce the God of the Bible. Acts chapter 17, as Paul is preaching to a bunch of idol worshipers, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. I've passed along and observed the objects of your worship. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Do you get the point? God's too big for him to fit in a temple. God's too big to be shrunken down into a painting or a wooden statue or a golden calf. 
Surely they were thinking, well, a golden calf is showing beauty and strength, and, and, and surely Yahweh is strong and wonderful and majestic. Look how he compares to the other gods of Egypt. So let's make him in this golden calf. But that's not doing justice to the God of the Bible. Yeah, he's strong, but a golden calf? He's infinite in his strength. There is no limit to it. One Baptist preacher, I think, summed it up well. When you make a graven image of God, you fix God. You make him finite and limited. Images are limited, but God is unlimited. Images are local, but God is universal. Images are temporal, but God is eternal. Images are material, but God is a spiritual being. When you make an image of God, you distort God. Are you starting to see why idolatry is a problem? Like, this is not good. If you want to follow, believe, be a Christian, obey the Bible, idolatry is a problem. Probably the biggest problem associated with idolatry is that several of us, maybe many of us, maybe all of us at times, don't think that we are idolaters. Which brings us to point number two. What is wrong with us? What is our problem with idolatry? One of the main reasons why people are blind to idolatry is because they think the normal thing, like, well, I don't have any statues or paintings or icons that you're talking about. I don't light candles when I'm praying to God. I just pray to God. Now, I want to make sure that I don't blow over that point. Like, honestly, if you're here today and you do not bow down to statues or have wooden images in your house, like, that's a good step, like, Step one, don't have those in your home and pray to them. If you do and you want to follow the Bible, you should get rid of them. I don't think we should assume that everybody in this room doesn't have those things in their house or in their private worship. They're not here on this stage, but many Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox traditions use icons. And as recent as the 1960s, the Catholic Church has officially taught that it is okay to bow down to icons. Chicago land is full of Catholicism. Some of you have come from that background. So I don't think we should take this obvious first point of some of us are idolaters because we literally bow down and worship to statues and images that we should not. But for most of us, in the broader sense of this command, not the most narrow sense of images and statues. You need to realize that the Bible is very clear that we make idols in our hearts, and it explicitly uses that language. So Ezekiel chapter 14 says, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces a stumbling block of iniquity. Should I be consulted by these men at all? Therefore, I want you to speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up an idol in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his sin, and then comes to the prophet. I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the manner in view of the multitude of his idols. If you want me to sum that passage up very briefly, God's telling Israel, I'm not going to talk to you, listen to you, or deal with you in a relational way until you get rid of the idols. Not, Not the statues, but in your heart. Or as the New Testament says in Colossians 3, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, 
and greed, which is idolatry. Greed, huh. Greed is idolatry? Yes. Colossians 3, verse 5, look it up. Covetousness or greed, depending on your translation. That is idolatry. In other words, the first two commandments begin with have no other gods and don't make any gods, and the last commandment is about idolatry too. Don't covet anybody else's stuff, because when you do, you're making an idol. So all through the Bible, we read of passages like this that explain that idolatry is not just external statues, images, paintings, but they can be in your mind right now. That when you pray earlier in the service, just now, you might have had an image and a picture of God, and that could have been idolatry. You could have had an image in your heart, a false God, a false idea of him. So as Tim Keller summarizes, idolatry is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That's the broader sense of idolatry. Anything more important than God is idolatry. Anything that absorbs your heart or your imagination, anything that you seek that only God should be providing. And this is why it's so central to your life. That you understand you have an idol problem. So start asking yourself this morning. What is so central to you in your life right now that should you lose it, you would feel your life is not even worth living? If you answer that question and you discern what that thing is or what that person is, and if it's not God, then you have an idol. What are the things that you look at and say in your heart of hearts, I have to have it. My life has only meaning when I have this. I only find value, significance, purpose, security when I have fill in the blank. Whatever that blank is, if it's not God, you have an idol. This week I heard a story from a pastor who made his first trip to India. He said that he was overwhelmed by the number of temples the number of idols and statues that the Hindu gods. He said he'd never seen anything like it before in his life. It's just overwhelming, like, wow. We don't see this kind of stuff here in the United States. Then something a bit ironic and funny happened when he met a woman who had just returned from the United States who grew up in India her whole life. And he asked her, hey, how did you like your trip to the United States? You think you'll go back? How was it? She said, no, I did not enjoy it. There was too much idolatry. The pastor was shocked, stunned, a little taken back. He thought this was one of those good moments where Jesus says, hey, you shouldn't be pulling the speck out of someone else's eye until you got the log in your own eye. He's looking around like, who's the idolater? The Americans or, or the Indians? And then he realized as he thought about it more, Yeah, we have just as many idols, if not more. It's not just if you have temples or priests or a bunch of statues. We in our contemporary society, we're not that much different than the Eastern religions, the ancient religions. You shouldn't look back at the people making a golden calf and be like, well, we would never do that. Like, come on, Pastor Phil, we're so much more mature and evolved and modern 
each culture is dominated by idols in the world. And we each have our own different sets of idols. We all have our own different priests. We have our own rituals, shrines. Some people call them office towers or spas or gyms or studios or sports stadiums. If you were to not tell somebody but just start describing, hey, there's a bunch of people that gather together in a big coliseum. They paint their faces, they jump up and down, they cheer, they celebrate, they pray, they're asking God, oh. And then you're telling them, oh yeah, they're watching a football game. Yeah, they're just watching a football game. But if somebody knew nothing about football, you just described everything that the people in the stands were doing, they would be like, they're worshiping. That's worship. So we have different names for our temples, different names for our places of worship, but make no mistake, That is, in fact, what they are. We make sacrifices to procure the blessings and the life that these idols are believed to promise us. What do you think? What are the the gods, the idols of beauty and power and money and achievement in our world? Many of you probably don't kneel down before the statue of Aphrodite, but how many women in this church sitting here now, struggle with their body image, eating disorders, depression, constant obsession with how they look and the fear of what people think about them based on their appearance. Many of us don't kneel and bow down before Artemis. But how many of us are driven by money, careers, How many fathers have performed a child sacrifice act of worship by neglecting their families, their communities, their churches, so they could just get a higher pay, move up in their career? Anything can be an idol. Are you starting to see that? This is the phrase I want you to remember on this point. An idol can be anything Anytime you make a good thing into a God thing. It doesn't just have to be bad things. It doesn't have to be false gods. It could be just a good thing. Careers are good. Men, we should work hard. But if careers become your God, you've made it a God thing, a supreme thing, an ultimate thing, and you sacrifice your family at the altar of your success and your career, it's made it a God thing. Anything can become an idol because anytime a good thing is turned into a God thing, it now demands and overrides your normal Christian values. I think all of us need to be thinking today, this week, really for the rest of our Christian life, especially if this is a new concept for you. I know in in some ways this might be a bit elementary if you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard this sort of teaching, but I don't want to assume all of us have heard this. This is central. This is Christianity 101, this is you growing as a Christian 101, identifying the idols in your life. You will stunt your growth if you do not learn this important lesson. It's Mother's Day. Maybe we should give a shout out to the moms, encourage them to make idols of their children, find their identity, their value in their children, in their families. It's an easy temptation for moms. Fathers as well. 
You can tell by the way parents discipline their children. Some parents don't discipline them at all and they let their kids get away with whatever. Often because their children are an idol. Some parents discipline them too much because they so desperately want their children to be a certain way and they've made an idol out of whatever that thing is that they over-discipline their children. Are you starting to see how this infiltrates all of your life? And why I said from the beginning, we need to leave this room admitting I have a problem. I have an idol problem. My heart apart from God's work in it, is prone to manufacture idols with every good thing in the world. Some idols are more obvious, some are more subtle. We could take preaching, Christian ministry, you name it. I can remember when I first got married, I learned this lesson the hard way. I've taken a good thing, made it a God thing, made sacrifices at the altar, and hurt my family. When I got married, I was 19. I was just finishing my sophomore year of college. My wife is older than me. She was already done school, and the plan was for her to get a full-time job and for me to continue in school and then go on and have our happy married life. I was playing college basketball. It helped pay for school, and If you know anything about collegiate sports, it's a lot of time and dedication. And so that was a part of the gig. I get free tuition. I got to put in the time and energy to go to practice and show up and work hard. Nothing wrong with that. That's good. What happens when you take a good thing and make it a God thing? Now, some of you might be like, basketball? Really, Phil? That seems lame. Our, Our idols can be lame. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm just opening up to you and confessing, I have made this mistake just as often as you all have. And the reason I remember this story in particular in my life is because I remember that as I was playing basketball, it wasn't just I wanted to be a good faithful soldier on the team and work my hardest and contribute. I wanted to be the best. I had to dominate others. I needed to be above, and I needed my approval and satisfaction to evolve around, hey, if I'm a starter, a team captain, I scored this many points, I'm getting awards. You see how this quickly turns into a God thing? It doesn't matter what it is. I think it's lame, putting a ball in a hoop. My life was revolved around putting a ball in a hoop. How lame is that? But I didn't just go to practice. I didn't just go to weightlifting. I didn't just go to video sessions and the several hours. I would almost every night before bed shoot 500 jump shots in the gym. It's not good for your marriage. Just, I, I wasn't happy, wasn't content. I had to do more and more and more to be the best. And then the day happened. And Christine, in obviously the most loving, gracious way, woke me up to the reality of my idolatry. She said, Phil, I believe that you have a mistress. And I'm like, I I have not committed an adultery. What are you talking about? No, no, no. It's not another woman. It's basketball. Yeah, that that cut deep, right? You have another mistress. I'm competing. I'm competing, Phil, with basketball. You care more about this. You give more time to basketball than you do me. I feel like I'm always second to basketball. 
In love, I needed that. I'm sure I didn't receive it as gracefully. I'm sure I looked at her with a dumb look on my face. Huh, what? But eventually, by God's grace and his Holy Spirit working in my life, I realized she was exactly right. I had made a good thing a God thing. I had made basketball everything. Do you see how much Christine loved me? I think that's the only way to understand this next point. As we conclude this message, I want us to look at God's problem with idolatry. And I don't want you to read these verses, especially in verse 6, and shake your fist or your, your own mind at God and say, God, what's, why are you jealous? Let's look at this passage again. Verses 4 and 5 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath, that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down before them or serve them. And then this is one of the most important words in this passage. Commandment 2, most important word, three letters long, for. This is not just the reason why. We've given some reasons why already you shouldn't make an idol because God already made an idol. Here's another reason why, but this isn't just a reason why. If you get this, you'll not only get why you shouldn't have idols, but how to crush the current idols in your life. Four, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation on those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Why should you not make idols? Because for God is jealous, and he will punish and discipline those who hate him. Verse 5 is being interpreted, verses 4 and 5 is being interpreted by verse 6 when it says, on those who hate me in verse 5. Did you notice that he says, I will not visit with punishment and judgment on the fathers, on the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who worship idols? That's what I was expecting to read. It's not what he says. As the verse progresses, you get more information to help interpret what idolatry at its core is. It's hatred and rejection of God. Hatred of God. I will visit them because they hate me. Now, some of us might struggle with this because it says God is going to punish children for their parents' mistakes. That's what we might think it's saying. And so that makes us feel like, what's wrong with God? He's really upset about this idolatry thing. He's punishing a bunch of innocent children. They didn't even do anything. Don't read the text that way. The Bible never teaches that God punishes children because they didn't sin. Well, your father sinned, and so therefore your children, you're going to have to get punished for it. It's not, not anywhere in the Bible. Read the text very carefully. It's saying, he will visit the children, even to the third and the fourth generation, because those children also hate him. They're following in their parents' footsteps. He's, it's a warning and a reminder to the parents, realize the importance of your example and role model, if children follow in your footsteps, not only will you be punished, but the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, all those children who are hating God and worshiping idols will be visited with judgment. 
That's what the text is saying. Write down if you want and read it later. Ezekiel 18, I just want to bring to your attention. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 19, it says, Yet you who say, why should the son not suffer for the iniquity of the father? That's the very question we're talking about. Why don't children suffer for mom and dad's sins? And then here's the answer. It says, because the soul who sins shall die. The son will not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. Read Ezekiel chapter 18, especially around verses 14 and following, right there in verse 19. I think that phrase is really helpful to interpret what we're seeing here. The soul that sins shall die. So the father, the son, the third generation, and the fourth generation, all who sin as idols will receive punishment. So God's judgments in the Bible are always just and righteous and good. This passage is not saying God is so crazy, angry, jealous that he's just going to start bringing judgment on innocent children that didn't even sin. That's misunderstanding this passage. Furthermore, the word jealousy is easy for us to misunderstand. Some of you may not know this, but In the archives of the Oprah Winfrey show, she confessed during one of her famous talk shows that she was at a church service hearing a pastor expound the attributes of God. He is power. He is eternal. He is beautiful. He is truth. He is love. He is grace. He is mercy. He is. And then Oprah said, I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until the pastor said, he is jealous. She says, something struck me at that moment. She says, I think I was about 27, 28 years old, and I was thinking, God is everything. He is everywhere. He is powerful. He is all-knowing. But God is jealous? No. Why is God jealous of me? Something about that did not feel right in my spirit because I believe God is love and that God is in everything. And so she says, At that moment, she turned away from traditional Christianity that she was raised with and created her whole new Oprah religion. But you can hear it, can't you? Can you hear it in her words? What's wrong with God? Why is he so jealous? Something wrong with him. That's not right. She's pointing the finger at God, and so therefore, I don't want to have anything to do with the God of the Bible. I wonder how many of us that's a problem for you. You hear this word, jealous. What? God? Jealous? It would be maybe easy for some of us to reject the God of the Bible because of his jealousy. But I'm going to propose this morning that if you understand the jealousy of God, you will not only be smarter and wiser and better understanding the Bible, but you will have the key to crush idols in your life. So, first, you must realize what I'm almost certain Oprah did not realize the Bible teaches two kinds of jealousy. A sinful, bad jealousy, the one you and I normally think of when we hear that word, and a divine and godly good jealousy. Bad jealousy is what you and I normally think of. It's that attitude that says, I don't have that, and I want it so badly, and I'm going to do anything I can to get it, and I hate whoever has it because I don't, and I want it. That's sinful jealousy. 
But the other kind of jealousy in the Bible is a zeal to protect a loving relationship and work and fix whatever's broken. A zeal, a passion for protecting a relationship, not hurting or, I want that. No, I want something not to happen and harm this person, and so I'm jealous that they stay safe and right and good. That's the divine jealousy. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11.2. Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to your husband and to present you as a pure virgin to Jesus Christ. Jot that down. 2 Corinthians 11.2. There is a category in the Bible for divine good jealousy. And Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, says, I have that kind of jealousy for you. I want to present you, protect you as blameless and holy before Jesus. God's love is so great for us that he passionately works to protect our relationship with him that nothing, nothing needs to get in the way. If anything does get in the way, then he passionately wants to zealously pursue us in that. He knows better than all of us that nothing else on this earth can satisfy our longings and hunger and desires than him. So when we start worshiping idols, when we start bowing down and sacrificing to these false gods, we're going we're to end up empty. And God loves you too much to let that happen, so he's jealous to not let that happen. That's what this whole jealousy thing is about. In other words, jealousy is a passionate, zealous love. And if there is a God who exists, and he does, And he so loves you that way. How could you ever turn to anyone else? I'm the Lord your God, he says, who brought you out of the land of slavery. I am your God, the jealous God. You see that in verse 5. For the Lord your God. He's so personal. It's his personal covenant name, Yahweh, in this text. He's not jealous of idols because he wants the idols so badly. Oh, man, you guys got those idols again? I wish I had those idols. Ah, I'm so jealous. It's not the kind of jealousy. It's that love for you that this is going to lead to your ruin and destruction. I love you too much. In the same way that my wife, Christine, was not jealous of basketball because she wanted to play basketball. (laughs) That's a funny thought. (laughs) She's like a foot shorter than me, you know? And, like, has never played in her life. So, she was not jealous of basketball because she wanted basketball and all the accolades that she could get by playing because she wouldn't have gotten any accolades. Well, maybe that's a little mean, but, I mean, it would have been hard. She didn't want basketball. She wanted me. Phil, I want you. You have a mistress. It's basketball. I want you. That's what God is saying in this passage, in this commandment. I want you so badly. I'm jealous And I will visit with judgment anyone who would turn to a false god and bow down to an idol. Do you see that in verse 6? Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He is showing love in this commandment. Oh, that the second commandment teaching us in the divine jealousy of God would sweep you off your feet this morning that you would be raptured in his love and his commitment and his zeal and his passion for you, especially when you see that sinful jealousy leads people to be so angry that they would do anything to try and get what they want. 
Have you seen people that way? Sinful jealousy lead people to even kill and murder. But God's divine jealousy is the exact opposite. In his divine good jealousy, it led Jesus to have such love for you that he would not stop pursuing you no matter what it took, even if it meant he would die. Sinful jealousy leads people to kill and get others, murder, violence, whatever it takes, I gotta have it. Godly jealousy is willing to sacrifice and lay down its life for you because he's got to have it. So let's set our gaze on the fierce, jealous love of God toward you. And then ask yourself, as you look in the mirror every day, how in the world could I walk away from a God who would love me this much? There is nothing There is no God that is greater. There is no God that is stronger. There is no God that can heal and save and rescue and deliver like our God. Why would you walk away from him? Let us not make images and bow down to worship because God has given us Jesus. And Jesus, as he cries on the cross, gives us the greatest divine jealous love that the world has ever seen. Let's pray together.